1 Kings chapter 9 tonight. We'll continue on with the story of Solomon as we near the end of Solomon's life. The end of Solomon's story that came and went pretty quickly. Tragically, we don't see the increase of faith and relationship in Solomon's life that we see in David's. We see just the opposite of that. As we've talked about, there's a very simple reason for that. David was a man of relationship with God. Solomon was a man of religion. David was wholehearted. Solomon was half-hearted. David walked with integrity and single-mindedness in his relationship with God. Solomon was distracted, in fact, turned away to worship God and Jesus and the Lord in addition to other idols. Now I'm going to call this tonight, these couple of chapters, we were going to do chapter 11, I'm going to save that for Sunday, but we're going to cover chapter 9 and 10 tonight, and as we go through, this is what I would call the final analysis. We'll analyze what it is that Solomon did, the height to which he rose. We'll look very clearly, and the scriptures are very specific about what he accomplished in his life. We'll have an accounting of how much he amassed in the way of his wisdom and in the way of wealth. We'll get to the women on Sunday. And we're going to see where it all got him in terms of his walk with the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 9 and chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Chapter 9 begins by reminding us that the Lord had once appeared to Solomon earlier in his life, but now appeared to him again later in his life. Twenty years has gone by in between these two appearances. The first time in Gibeon, and the second time here, after the building of the temple, after the building, the architecture of his, of his getaway home in Lebanon, after building the house for Pharaoh's daughter, after building the citadel and the wall, and all the things that he did, his architectural work, everything the Bible says that he desired to do, everything that Solomon dreamed of. Twenty years of his rule has passed, and the Lord now appears to Solomon again. I'd like to go back to the first appearance for a moment in 1 Kings chapter 3. So you can turn back there. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1. It tells us Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places, the pagan high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Verse 5 tells us in Gibeon, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. I want you to recognize some things. And the two appearances of God in Solomon's life, both times he appears to Solomon in a dream. But in these two appearances, we, we learn something about the Lord's interaction with Solomon. And the first thing is simply that the Lord called Solomon down from the high place. The first time he appears to him, in the first dream, he calls Solomon down from the high place. And I love that because it reminds us that God comes to where we are and pulls us out of our own paganism. What are you talking about, Rick? I'm not a pagan. No, but so much of what we do is pagan. So much of how we live our lives. And so often, the very place that God finds me and pulls me out of is the place I shouldn't have been in the first place. The place of my own desires, the place of my own longings and chasing after. Jesus comes right where we are. He doesn't say anything. We recognize this last when we were studying this chapter. God doesn't say anything about the fact that Solomon is in a high place, sacrificing possibly to pagan gods. He just appears to him and says, Hey Solomon, what can I do for you? Incredible mercy. Incredible patience from a God who meets us first where we are and then begins to draw us to where he is. He called Solomon down from the high place. Abraham 
was a polytheistic man. He was a pagan. His family were pagans. They lived in Ur of the Chaldees, southern Iraq. That's where Abraham grew up. And Abraham and his father, they moved from there. But God called Abram while he was a pagan. Not when he had figured out that there was just one God. Not once Abraham had become monotheistic. But while he was a pagan, while he was polytheistic, God shows up and he says in Genesis 12 verse 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And at that point in Abram's life, he hadn't done a single thing for God. Nothing. He hadn't shown faithfulness, though he would be called later the father of the faithful. He hadn't done a single good thing. How many of you were there when God called you? And that's that's a great thought. Rather than look back at where we were and how we used to live our lives and feel bad about it, recognize the fact that God stepped right into the middle of that, regardless of what you were, what you were doing, how you were acting. And he said, hey, I want to bless you. Come with me. Let's get into a relationship together. I think about the Apostle Paul. Saul was his name. And he was on a mission to Damascus to arrest and possibly execute more Christians in his campaign against the church. He was zealous for God, so he thought. A Jew among Jews. And Jesus stopped him on the road and readjusted his vision and set him on a new mission, not against the church, but for the church. Paul describes this in Acts 22, verse 4. He actually describes it several times in the book of Acts. But in this retelling, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. So Paul says, I was a murderer of Christians. I imprisoned those who now I would call my brothers and sisters. He says, from the council of the elders, I received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order even to bring those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on the way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Abraham, Saul, and so many others throughout history, including each of us sitting here tonight, were called down from the high place. The high place of our life, the high place of our success, the high place of our own selfish intentions and our own doings. God calls us down from there and back to be with Him. He has a way of reaching into our lostness and setting us right. And He does that before we do anything. And I point that out just to remind you all that even now, if you've been walking with Jesus for years, there's still nothing greater you can do for Him than what He did for you. We do what we do out of response and love, but not because we think we can gain one more inch of Jesus' heart. He's already given it all. So Solomon was sacrificing on a pagan high place when the Lord met him in a dream, giving him direction for life and leadership. He called Saul from Gibeon. He also, the second time now, 20 years later, is going to call Saul from Jerusalem. Something else to notice, though, not only did he call Saul down from the high place, but the Lord only came to Solomon two times in his life. Don't forget this. And sometimes we can read the biblical stories and see the interaction of people with their God and think, wow, you know, if I had that kind of interaction, it would be great. Two times in 20 years is not a lot of input from God to Solomon. Not a lot of interaction. Saul saw him twice, both in a dream, as as we see, but there was 20 years of non-appearance in between. I'm again reminded of Abraham, who went years between visits from the Lord, even though James calls him the friend of God. James chapter 2, verse 23. Wouldn't you think the friend of God would be walking with God every day of his life? But that wasn't the case with Abraham. It wasn't the case with David. It wasn't the case with Solomon. 
There were often multiple years in between the appearances of God. Why? Because faith is never based on sight. It's not based on seeing the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus said in John 20.29, that famous verse, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And David, the man after God's own heart, the most single-hearted man probably ever to have lived, the exception is Jesus, David never saw the Lord once in his life. Well, that kind of surprised me. I mean, I thought about this. I'm looking at the two appearances of God to Solomon, and I thought, well, surely he appeared to David. We just studied David. He appeared to David a lot of times, right? And went back over and looked, not a single appearance. David never, at least as far as Scripture details, David never saw the Lord. But you can't read the Psalms and not know that David, David heard from him every day. He always heard from the Lord. He walked in relationship with God. He talked to the Lord. He spoke with Him. There was a communion between David and the Lord. And David never saw with his eyes, but he constantly heard with his ears. As God poured His Spirit out on David. So we have a man who walked in communion who never saw the Lord. And we have his son who saw the Lord twice. And the man who walked in communion had a much deeper relationship with the Lord. If you ever, in, in this age, in the case when we hear this, we talk about or someone says, oh, I just kind of wish I'd lived back then. You know, or I wish I lived in the first century. And I've shared with you all before, I wouldn't want to live any other time. I think we're in the most exciting times of the world's history. I think we're going to see some things that people have longed to see. But even if we don't, isn't it good to know that our faith is not based on sight? We just get to hear from the Lord and we can commune with Him all the time, anytime. And David understood this. Whether you've had a recent fresh experience from the Lord or not, the encouragement here is to remain constant in the Word, constant in prayer, because He is developing in us an eternal faith, not a temporary one. But why does the Lord call on Solomon now? Why does he wait these 20 years? And now he comes back to Solomon and calls on him. Personally, I think the first time the Lord was calling Solomon down from the high place. And I think the second time he was again calling Solomon down from the high place. Because as we just read, after all that Solomon desired to do. Number three, the Lord was concerned with Solomon's heart. Why would he show up now? He was concerned with Solomon's heart. Verse 3. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, which you have built, by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all I have commanded commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Notice the critical three-word phrase in verse 4. If you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart. Integrity of heart. That Hebrew word for integrity, tamam, means completeness, wholeness. It means being full or finished. And the Lord's saying, walk with your whole heart. I don't want half. I don't want three quarters. I don't even want nine tenths. I want all of your heart. To walk with integrity of heart before the Lord is to give up all that we are to Him. Placing Him in first place. Psalm 15, verse 1. David wrote, O Lord, who may abide in your tents? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. I don't think we can work righteousness or even speak truth in our heart unless we have integrity. Which simply means, again, a complete heart to the Lord. Single-heartedness. Solitary and intentional focus. God wants Solomon's heart completely. And again, we see it's the heart that matters more than anything else to the Lord. It's not the accomplishments. It's not the building of the temple. God doesn't say, wow, Solomon. Amazing. 
fantastic construction, incredible architecture. I am impressed. He comes to Solomon and says, I want your heart. I want you to walk with me in relationship and with integrity. I'm reminded back when David was anointed that the Lord said, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. For Samuel 16.7. So why does he call on Solomon now? He says, hey, Shlomo, which I love calling him that because that's what his name is. That's, in fact, even now in Israel, Shlomo is Solomon. Shlomo. Spell it S-H- L-O-M-O Shlomo which is where we hear the word Shalom and his name means peace and God says to Shlomo hey you built a beautiful temple you've met, had ample opportunity now to pursue your heart's desire to build and construct and go after things now let's get back to what matters I want to be your heart's desire I've given you plenty about 20 years to run around check things out and learn things and and live and walk in the wisdom that I gave you. Now, let's you and I spend some time together. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's single-heartedness. It's saying above and beyond all other things, my life, my success, my other relationships, yes, even my ministry, the most important thing is the Lord. Single-heartedness. I remember Jesus' plaintive words to that fine, stalwart, faithful church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he cries out to Ephesus, Hey, you've done great work. You've been faithful. You're a studly church, my paraphrase. But you've forgotten your first love. The one thing he wants to say to that faithful church, which, by the way, represents the church of the first century, Ephesus does, is remember your first love. And all that you do for me, and it's all great, don't forget about me. Remember your first love. So the Lord at this point is calling Solomon's heart. In verse 6, he continues on. He says, But if you are your sons indeed, turn away from following me. And do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And the house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins, and everyone who passes by will be astonished. Those of you who went to Israel last time we were there, were you astonished? You fulfilled prophecy just in walking by the Temple Mount and looking at the stones piled up on the ground below and going, wow. That's exactly what God said would happen. And people will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And God says, They will say, verse 9, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. This is exactly historically what happened. You see, God in His love, compassion, and mercy always warns ahead of time. He never just does things. You know, I was talking to Hannah today, and we were just talking about when she was younger, and you know, we were just interacting a little bit. I was, I was sharing, kind of confessing to her. There were times I just, I wish I could go back and, and reparent. Not because of how she's turned out, or how Corey's turned out, or Hayden, but I wish I could reparent because there are things I did back then I just wish I didn't do. And I believe I've shared with you before times when I was just angry and they needed disciplining, but instead of thinking it through and being methodical and, and planned out and loving about it, you know, Hannah would walk by and bam, as she was going by. She didn't even see it coming. Felt good. No warning. Well, see, that's how we act in the flesh, but God says, Solomon, I, I'm not, this is not what I want to do, but I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. If you turn away from me, if you chase after these other gods, you're going to lose me. And you're definitely going to lose this house. And that's what happened. It's interesting to me, and it says this in other places in Scripture, Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all people. And you all know this. No other people group in the history of the world has been such a byword as the Jews. 
I think of Hitler's golden star. And by the way, that idea didn't start with Hitler. It started in pogroms long before Hitler. Persecutions against the Jewish people where they had to wear a golden star to point them out in society. And in the middle of that golden star, in German, was written Jude. They were a byword. And even today, jokes are made about Jewish people just because they're Jewish. Proverbs are told as God said would happen. And don't miss the fact that it breaks God's heart. He didn't want it to happen. What is the primary concern of the Lord? Is it our sin? Is it cleaning up our lives? After all, 1 Kings 8.46, Solomon in his prayer said, There is no man who does not sin. But remember this. God even provided a way back then Prior to Jesus on the cross, he provided a way to cover sin so man could be in relationship with him. And then he came down in flesh as Jesus Christ. He tabernacled among us, died on the cross to provide the ultimate propitiation for our sins so that we could walk in relationship with him. The primary issue is heart level. The primary issue for God with Solomon when he's trying to call Solomon's heart back to him is adultery. Not sexual sins, not physical adultery, spiritual adultery. The thing that matters most to God is not how perfect we're living our lives, but it's whether or not we love Him. Are we walking with Him? That's what He's concerned about. When you talk to friends and family members who don't believe in Jesus, it's not about, look, you've got to get your life together. It's about God is passionately in love with you. You matter to Him. Forget about everything else. He just loves you. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to bless you. He wants to bring you back to His heart. And I'll tell you something. For all of Solomon's lust and carnality, had he maintained a single-hearted devotion to the Lord, as his father David had done before him, things would not turn out the way they're going to turn out for Solomon. David sinned. He murdered, he committed adultery, he had multiple wives, he did many of the same exact things Solomon did. But the difference was, David had single-hearted devotion to the Lord. Yeah, he had multiple wives, but none of those women had his heart like the Lord did. And yes, he committed heinous sins. But the violation in his mind and in his heart when he sinned was not against people. It was always against the Lord. Because David was so single-hearted. What's interesting here is that God makes a conditional, a conditional promise with Solomon. If you will do these things, I'll be with you, Saul. If you don't do these things, I won't be with you. Number four thing to note here, the Lord's promise was conditional. Why? After all, he made unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. There's only one of all the covenants, and there are roughly seven covenants that God made with the people of Israel. One of the seven covenants was conditional, the Mosaic Law. Every other covenant God made, beginning with Abraham and all the way through, everyone was unconditional. I am going to do this for you. Not dependent on what you do. So why now is God all of a sudden seeming to change his tune? Why is he looking at Solomon and saying, if, if you keep my statutes and walk with me and do these things that I'm telling you to do, if, well then, then I'll be with you. The Lord's promise was conditional to produce faithfulness. The Lord's promise was conditional to produce faithfulness. He had an end result in mind for Solomon. And that end result was what he had with David. And that is a faithful relationship. So he gave Solomon some things to do that would produce in him a faithful heart. It's the same today. God's love is unconditional and that he loved us first and he continues to love us. But there is one condition that he places on the lives of any human being who comes to him. And the single condition God has for us is relationship. Seems like we've been hearing that word a lot. Lately, a lot in the life of David and now in the life of Solomon. Relationship, relationship, relationship. It's Jesus' words 
when he says, and you've probably heard this, Matthew 7, 22, that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Is it about the prophetic and the miracles and, 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 the, and the works and the strength and the ministry and the service and all the wonderful things that he calls us to? Is that what he wants? No. He wants relationships. Because all those other things, guess what? If we're walking in passionate relationship with God, they're going to happen. They are going to naturally flow out of our love for the Father. We're not going to be all about ministering to people just so that we can buy our way in. It, that's real tough motivation. The purchase of salvation. Yeah, i got to go down to the church again today. There's a work day. I don't know they're painting the barn or something. But i got to be there, man. Because i got to prove myself to God. SpongeBob is on? Okay, I'll wait a half an hour. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. it, that is tough motivation. But the motivation to serve that grows out of that passionate relationship... When you're painting the barn, you're going, Jesus loves me. This, you know, I mean, it's just, that's what it's about. In Solomon's case, the Lord came to Solomon to call him down from the high places because he was concerned with Solomon's heart and he conditions the kingdom promise to encourage faithfulness in relationship with Solomon. I wanted to point all that out because we need to see where God's intentions were with Solomon. And now we see Solomon's reaction and response because in spite of the fact that Solomon fails to get this, God's kingdom promise still stands through David. Solomon will blow it. The kingdom will be divided. Ultimately, the kingdom will completely fall apart. It will kind of get pieced back together, held together with you know so many band-aids until ultimately again it falls apart. And then in our generation, once again, Israel comes back in together as a nation. God is working something. But eternally, God made a promise to David that stands, that is unconditional, that he will follow through. It's called the Millennial Kingdom. If you wonder, what's up with that? And I used to wonder that, by the way. What is up with the Millennial Kingdom? Why do that? Why not just come down and get us, take us home to heaven, and be done with it? Because the Lord would say, I have a promise to keep. My promise was a king on the throne in Jerusalem perpetually. I told David I would do it. I'm going to do it. That's the millennial kingdom. And so we know it will come. The Lord is going to fulfill the word that he spoke. But moving on now in chapter 9, verse 10, it tells us that it came about at the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold according to all his desire. And then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they did not please him. He said, what are these cities which you've given me, my brother? And so they were called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul means... uh, Basically, worthless. It's not worth anything. Nothingness. Verse 14 says, Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold, and that explains what's going on here. Verse 14 helps us to understand. You see, if if Solomon had given King Hiram of Tyre 20 cities in the Galilee as a show of friendship, it would have been pretty rude of Hiram to come down and go, these are pathetic. You call this a gift of friendship? What's this about? It would be awfully unappreciative. Can you imagine that? You give someone something as a gift to a friend. Let's say I say, hey, hey Dan, I'm going I'm to give you my guitar. And he looks at it and goes, a tailor? <laughs> I mean, if it was a Gibson, maybe. But come on, what kind of friend are you? I mean, we just don't respond like that. And Hiram was not responding to a gift. He was responding gang to payment. These cities are actually a form of repayment. What are you talking about? Look again in in verse 14. It says, And Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. The word sent there in the Hebrew is in the... Is it the imperfect or the imperative form? Hang on. It's in the imperfect form. So I'm sure that clears it up for you. (laughs) It's better translated, had sent. Hiram had sent 120 talents of gold to Solomon. In other words, during the building process at some point, Solomon ran short on gold. 
He needed a little bit more. We got some more pomegranates to cover, a few more parts of the wall to cover. We just put these big pillars up. We got to cover those too. So we're going to need some more gold. And they look around and realize, hey, we're out. We've used all the gold we have. Hey, Hiram, I need some more gold. Hiram apparently had some on hand. And so he sends him 120 talents, which, by the way, 120 talents is four and a half tons. So this was a ton of gold. And Hiram felt like he gets the short end of the stick. He gives four and a half tons of gold, and in repayment for it, Solomon says, oh, and I, I'll take care of you. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, get, we'll square this. So later, to square it, he gives them 20 worthless cities in the Galilee. Kabul, good for nothing. Worthless. Apparently these cities were not good for planting or or sowing. The the land wasn't good. It wasn't tillable. So Hiram went away a little upset. He's as good as saying, thanks for nothing, bud. Then I give you four and a half tons of gold for your construction efforts. And all I get is this (laughs) t-shirt. All I get is this land. That's all you're giving me? And that's the problem going on here. Now Solomon, for his part, may or may not have been acting shrewdly as a businessman. I mean, he may have been doing that, getting more for his, you know, more bang for his buck. I mean, watch what we do once I get the gold. I'll, I'll give him something, but I don't want it anyway. So regardless of how he was acting, Hiram is let down. You ever been disillusioned with the outcome of a friend's promise? You know, someone says, don't worry about it, I'll make it worth your while, only to be greatly disappointing. I, I was told by a father of a girl in the first youth group that I, that I worked in, the first wedding I ever did, he asked me, will you marry me and, and my bride? His first wife had passed away, and so he was remarrying, and he was so excited because he wanted to marry her at midnight... On the night where, and I don't even remember why, what the, what the deal was, but there was something to do with tax law and everything. They wanted to wait until that, that day. But they didn't want to wait any longer into the day. So at 12.01, will you marry us? Will you meet us down at the church? I'll make it worth your while. I'm like, okay. I'm going to clean up. This will be great. I got a gift certificate for 25 bucks to like some restaurant or something. I show up at midnight and you give me a gift certificate? I don't do weddings for gift certificates, okay? I just want you to know. So here's Hiram coming to Solomon and going, thanks a lot, man. He's bummed out. He's disappointed about it. And I, I ask this question, how do we avoid the disappointment of Hiram in business dealings with friends or in dealing with friends at all? And here's how you do it. Give without any expectation. Jesus said in Luke 6.30, Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what what credit is that for you? I love that. If you give credit, what credit is that for you? If you're just expecting to get it back with interest, how is that any good? He says, even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. The Bible talks a lot about lending and borrowing, and especially encourages us not to borrow. But here Jesus flips the whole thing upside down and says, no, go ahead and lend. Just don't ask for it back. You give to anybody as they have need, and don't expect it in return. And guess what? You'll never be disappointed. (laughs) That's great. And you know what works? It really does. He says, if you do this, your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. And there's the standard for giving. That's why you would do something as ridiculous and silly as giving without expecting it to be paid back. Because God did for us. We look at the Father as our standard and we say, wow. There's nothing I could give him to repay what he's done. So, it was a freebie. Salvation is free. And so he calls us to the same standard. Now in verse 15, we get on to this accounting 
this analysis of Solomon's holdings in both wisdom and wealth. Check this out. Now this is the account of the forced labor which King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord. His own house, the Milo, and the Milo is also the citadel, the wall of Jerusalem, Hatzor, which is a border city, Megiddo, which is a highly traveled city you can visit today, and Gezer. For Pharaoh king of Egypt had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer in the lower Bethoron and Baalat and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah and all the storage cities which Solomon had. Even the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and all that it pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land under his rule. As for all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the sons of Israel, notice they're still in the land. 480 years before, as the people were coming to the land, remember what God said? Wipe them out. Drive them completely out of the land. Don't leave a single one there. And here we have every one of these people groups still hanging out. Their descendants, verse 21, who were left after them in the land whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly. Why were they unable? Because they were unfaithful. Because if they truly believed the Lord and followed after Him, this would not still be a problem. From them, Solomon levied forced laborers even to this day. So they all became forced workers. Now I believe the Bible tells us he paid them but they still were forced. That was their job. However, Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel, verse 22. For they were men of war, his servants, his princes, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work. 550 who ruled over the people doing the work. And as soon as Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house which Solomon had built for her, then he built the Milo or the capital. Now, three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar which was before the Lord, and so he finished the house. So it's three times a year, by the way, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, the three feasts that Solomon celebrated there in Jerusalem. Verse 26, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Etzion Geber, which is near Elot, on the shore of the Red Sea. Same a lot that's there today in the land of Edom. And by the way, verse 26 is the only mention in all of Scripture of an Israelite navy. There was one under Solomon. And this is it. And they sailed the Red Sea and they were trained up and worked there. And verse 27 says, Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who knew the sea, along with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir. Ophir is India. And they took 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. 420 talents of gold, 15 and three-quarter tons of gold that they brought from India back to Solomon. In this accounting, we learn an awful lot, and you can kind of pick through it on your own time and think through what all Solomon oversaw and how much of a labor force that he had. 550 men who were over the work of all the rest of the people. That was his close staff. (laughs) Three times the year, offering offerings, building a fleet of ships. He had cities we saw up in verse 19 that were just for storage. You know those storage places that we see popping up all over the place. Isn't that interesting, by the way? Doesn't that say something about America today? We are so desperately in need of more barns to store our stuff. Incredible. And Solomon had it. Storage cities. And entire cities that were for his chariots and his horsemen. And their families. Megiddo is one of those. You've heard it. Armageddon, Armageddon, the city of Megiddo is on a mountain that overlooks the valley of Megiddo. And we see the ruins there today. And part of the ruins there in Megiddo are stalls for horses. Thousands of them. Because that was a horse city for Solomon. This man was absolutely unbelievable in what he accomplished in just 20 years. His riches, his wealth, his oversight, his standard of living. 
But you know what's interesting to me? If you do a quick comparison between Solomon's commerce, that in three years he amassed 420 talents of gold. That's 15, again, 15 and three quarters tons of gold in three years of commercial work, of capitalism at its best. Going to India, bringing the gold back. Three years of that, he gained 15 and three quarter tons of gold. David, in three years, brought in 100,000 talents of gold. That would be 3,750 tons in three years of combat. The difference is interesting to me because you've got commerce on the one hand. Three years of commerce brings 15 tons of gold. Three years of combat brings 3,750 tons of gold to David. Now why point that out? Because gang, our capitalistic society professes a great belief in commerce and commercialism. We think this is the way to amass wealth. And yet the scripture reveals to us that the real way to amass benefits that are not bought financially but are fought for faithfully is to be in the battle. That the battle... The combat is where the true riches lie, not the commerce. Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I'll never desert you, and I will never forsake you. You guys, be about the battle, Jesus would say. Get into the fray. Like David, fight, and you will amass a wealth untold. And I'm not talking about gold or cash. We will amass spiritual riches worthy of the kingdom of God if we will be in combat. But if we focus ourselves on commerce, and we may, may, we may get a draw, but it's not going to be anything like the benefit of fighting the good fight of the faith, First Timothy 6.12, and taking hold of the eternal life to which we were called. I like what John Corson says about this. He said, Riches in the Lord are not uncovered or discovered in the boardroom, but on the battlefield. That's where the value lies. Chapter 10 now introduces us to an interesting woman, the Queen of Sheba, who you've probably heard about. It says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. Sheba, it's been disputed, but the more conservative scholarship tells us Sheba was a kingdom to the far south of Israel in Yemen. Some have said Ethiopia, it's most likely that it was actually Lemon, uh, Yemen. <laughs> Part of that is because modern Yemen was once the kingdom of the Sabaeans. And the capital city was Seba. The queen of Seba, queen of Sheba. The words are very close in the ancient languages. And according to Kyle and Delich, Seba was a land celebrated for its trading gold, precious stones, spices, and incense, which you'll see come up in our story in just a moment. And the queen of Seba herself was historically incredibly famous and well-known. There are many writings that talk about the queen of Seba, which I believe to be the same as the queen of Sheba we have here in 1 Kings chapter 10. Now in verse 2 going on it says she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters in their attire, his cupbearers, and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. No more spirit doesn't mean that she was dispirited or bummed out. No more spirit specifically. Well, you Bible students, what is, do you remember the Hebrew word ruach? Does anyone know what ruach means? It means spirit. It also means breath. And so there was no more, and that's the word here, there was no more ruach left in her. In other words, when she saw all that Solomon had, she was breathless. And that's what the phrase is talking about. No more spirit, no more breath in the Queen of Sheba. In verses 4 and 5, we see seven things that most impressed her. The wisdom of Solomon blew her mind. The palace of Solomon was amazing. The food of his table, incredible. His seated officials, his vast number of servants, even the servants' uniforms were impressive to the Queen of Sheba. 
And finally, she was impressed by the stairway to the house of the Lord. The stairway to the house of the Lord. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here. I might be. Yeah, I am. I'll tell you what that is in just a minute and why it was so impressive. Verse 6, reading on. And then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. She heard something unbelievable to her ears, and when she saw it, it was beyond unbelievable. How blessed are your men, verse 8. How blessed are your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. And then she just breaks out and says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore He made you king to do justice and to do righteousness. And what we see happening here in the Queen of Sheba, I believe, is transformation unto salvation. I think this woman is getting saved. I think she's looking out at the blessings of God on the life and kingdom of Solomon and she's overwhelmed and she begins to pronounce God as Lord. She begins to profess something amazing. In fact, from another place, there's an indication that the Queen of Sheba, like many during this time, became a believer in Jehovah God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even to her very salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 12.42, The Queen of Sheba will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says. Jesus is the greater than Solomon who is there. And so he's indicating something. Oh, well, that's just one of those metaphors in Scripture, Rick, is talking there about the Queen of Sheba you know, rising up. He's just making an allusion to a historical thing that happened. You know, I really hate when people do that. When Jesus says the Queen of Sheba is going to rise up and condemn that generation, the Queen of Sheba is going to rise up and condemn that generation. I mean, unless the Bible gives us indication otherwise, what it is is what it is. And it's so much easier to read it that way for for simple-minded folk like me. Oh, cool, Sheba's coming back. Why would she be coming back? Unless she was saved. Unless she became one of the faithful of the Lord. She came to see the greatness of King Solomon, and what she witnessed was the greatness of King Jesus. Now if that confuses you because Jesus is New Testament and not Old Testament, then you haven't been around here very long. You know Jesus is God and God is Jesus. And so when we talk about the God of the Old Testament, we're talking about Jesus. And remember what Jesus said about the visible, tangible work of God in our lives. He said, Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's what just happened. The Queen of Sheba saw the good works of the Lord in Solomon's life and she praises God for it. And that's how it's supposed to work. Is that God is so involved in blessing our lives in so many ways that when people see it, they just praise Him. And this is what's going on with her. She saw his blessing, and I think she believed. By the way, verse 4, going back there, it talks about the stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. That stairway was specifically the stairway to the bronze altar. She was impressed with a lot of things. But the last thing listed there that she was most impressed with was the bronze altar of sacrifice. While the queen of Sheba was there, she saw the sacrifices taking place. And in seeing the sacrifices taking place, she was amazed at a God who had blessed so much and even at the same time provide a way to forgive sin. It's interesting to me. She recognized the splendor of the king, not King Solomon, but King Jesus. Verse 10. So she gave the king 120 talents of gold, another four and a half tons of gold, and a very great amount of spices and precious stones, which the Sabaeans were known to have. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the Queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great number of almond trees, 
and precious stones. Almic trees were a dark wood, apparently with a, a rose red interior. It was supposed to be a beautiful hardwood. So they brought that of precious stones, and the king made of the Albic trees supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and, and harps for the singers. Such almond trees have not come in again, nor have they been seen to this day. So this is something pretty rare. And in verse 13 tells us, King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire which she requested, besides what he gave her according to his royal bounty. And then she returned and went to her own land together with her servants. And even after the queen of Sheba left, they had this amazing life-altering experience in Solomon's kingdom. Even after this, the wealth kept pouring in. And the accounting and the analysis continues through the end of chapter 10. The weight of the gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, nearly 25 tons. Well, that's an interesting number. 666 talents of gold. Was the gold the beast? Remember what Revelation tells us. That the 666 is simply the number of a man. And so this gold that was coming in every year was a mark, at least Solomon was concerned, as far as he was concerned, a mark of human achievement. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I and my humanity and my manliness have done. I've got 666 talents coming in annually. Verse 15, besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three miners of gold on each shield and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. What are these? They are, they're just uh, showroom stuff. They're ornamentation. These are not shields for battle. These are shields for a parade. For celebration. Hung up in the halls of his house up in Lebanon. So not even there for, for readiness for battle, but they were there just to look at. They were pretty shields. Verse 18, moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with refined gold. Now, an ivory throne in and of itself would have been absolutely stunning. Let's cover it with gold, too. I mean, after all, we've got the gold. Let's keep going. Why stop there? There were six steps to the throne. Again, that number six. And around top to the throne at its rear, and arms on either side of the seat, and two lions standing beside the arms. All of this was crafted out of ivory. Six steps to the throne. By contrast, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, do you remember how many steps they took between every sacrifice? Six steps. And they stopped and sacrificed to God, and they worshipped God. And then they walked six steps, and they stopped and sacrificed and worshipped. And Solomon built his kingly, magnificent throne so that it would take six steps to get up to the height of his glory. Twelve lions, verse 20, were standing there on the six steps, on the one side and on the other, nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None of them was silver, for it was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. That's how rich he was, gang. Silver was like stones. I don't want that. Where's the gold? It tells us in verse 22, For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. And once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing, watch this list, gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. For what? Fun. They're pretty. They got the big feather thing going and the apes, they crack me up, you know. So King Solomon, verse 23, became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And he stationed them in the chariot cities and, the king, and with the king there in Jerusalem. 
verse 27. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are also in the lowland. And also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and from Kew. And the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And by the same means they exported them. So Solomon was in the import-export business. And they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans. Does anyone recall from Deuteronomy 17 what exactly it was that the king of Israel was not to amass for himself? Horses and chariots. And if you look back, gold and silver. And if you look back, wives. And in every single case, as we've seen before, we see again, in every case, Solomon violated it completely. The fourth thing that God told in Deuteronomy 17 for the king to do is sit down and write out a copy of my word. Write a copy of Torah in the presence of the priest. And when you're finished, you cling to that. You read it. You meditate on it. You spend time in it every day for the rest of your life. And you'll be a great king. That's what I want. Don't go after wives. Don't go after horses and chariots. Don't go after wealth or any of these things. But you go after my word. And you will be a great king. In the final analysis, Solomon multiplied, but he didn't count. He multiplied wives, he multiplied wealth, he multiplied in his wisdom, but he never counted the cost. And so, Solomon may very well have gained the whole world only to lose his soul. Now, I couldn't help this. But I began thinking of the comparison between Solomon's wealth in his commercial kingdom and that of commercial Babylon in the last days. Turn the Bible to over to Revelation 18. Revelation chapter 18. If you've studied Revelation with us or if you've heard any of the studies there, you know we went on an escalator ride in chapter 18 through what I call Babylon 5th Avenue. Where we read and we see John's description of the commercial center of world economy just before its fall. A fall that is determined, a fall that will happen in a place as yet unknown, although again, simplistically speaking, I believe it's Babylon and Iraq. I believe that will be the place, the center of world economy at this time. And so we read, we read in verse 12, Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. By the way, that's the top floor. That's the jewelry department. Okay. And then we come down next to the men's and women's wear, the clothing department. Fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. Continue to ride on down to home furnishings and kitchenware. Every kind of citron wood and every kind of article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble. The next floor is perfumes and cosmetics. Verse 13, cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense. From there we continue down to the food court with the wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep ultimately ending on the ground floor automotive. (laughs) Cargoes of horses and chariots. And finally, in the basement, we come to what I would call the adult bookstore, slaves and human life. And literally, there is the bodies and souls of men. Proverbs 6.32 says, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that does it destroys his own soul. And the subtle irony of that is Solomon wrote that proverb. Let me read it to you again. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that does it destroys his own soul. Solomon's primary problem gang was adultery, but not with women. It was adultery with other gods. He pursued, he chased after. We're going to talk about this in depth on Sunday morning with chapter 11. He chased after the gods of his wives. And in that pursuit and in that committing of adultery, he did exactly what he wrote in the book of Proverbs. He destroys his own soul. Back in 1 Kings chapter 10, 
verse 22, just listen to this again. The king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. And then verse 25, silver, gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. And I look at commercial Babylon, and I look at commercial Jerusalem in Solomon's kingdom, and compare the two lists, and they're so similar. And they have one thing in common more than anything else. Both lists describe things that are not common staples of living. They're luxuries. They're all luxuries. They're all extra things, superfluous things to the actual living of life. They are for luxury and pleasure and sensuality. And this is where Solomon, in the final analysis, has landed. The man who had everything, but didn't have the relationship with the Lord that he was invited into. Revelation 18, again, verse 14. I'll just read this to you if you've already come back to 1 Kings. It says, The fruit you long for has gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torments, weeping, and mourning. But here's the frightening thought. What was considered so important in the kingdom of Solomon, all those luxuries, and what we see in commercial Babylon as being the standard of living, all these, all this opulence, it also describes America today. Don't worry, I'm not going to go Reverend Wright on you. But what this describes is what many of us truly believe are common necessities of our daily American lifestyle. Horses. We gotta have our cars. We gotta have, you know, the fuel for them. As prices go up and up and up, has it cut back on any of our driving? And I'm not about to go environmental on you either. I'm just asking the question, what's important to us as Americans? What matters to us? What are we upset about when we don't have it? We have gotten, as a people, so far away from the staples of life that when we lose a luxury, we think we're suffering hard. And that's the problem with commercial Babylon, is they're so wrapped up in the luxury that when those things start to go away, oh no, we're losing the important things. No, they're not the important things. And Solomon, in his kingdom, apes and peacocks? Come on. It's ridiculous stuff. Now granted, we are living in a time where gas prices are at an all-time high. $121 a barrel yesterday. I don't know what it closed at today. $121 a barrel. Do you realize that last summer in the gas crisis, when we were all worried about gas prices going up, that we were topping $50 a barrel? I remember. I remember it topped 50 and I just went, how are we going to recover? And it's 121 now. And you know why it's so high? Speculators. It's not even real money. It's not even based on anything tangible. It's speculators in the futures market driving the prices up because they are so greedy. Groceries are up 46% over this time last year, which means $100 worth of groceries last year would cost $146 this year. Now, I don't know about you, but with three teenagers or two teenagers and one right, right behind them, that's important. That's a lot of money. Thank you for that, amen, Joe. <laughs> and I was processing all this stuff and thinking about where we are and in light of Solomon's vast wealth and the accounting of all these things, and I believe the Lord has a word for us. And it's a word whether we live in times of plenty or in times of want. Matthew chapter 6, I just want to read this to you. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, Matthew 6.25 Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns or storage facilities. 
<laughs> and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, listen, are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? Funny, Jesus says this 2,000 years later, we recognize that stress takes away our life. And worry decreases the value of our life. So obviously, it's not a good idea. Verse 28, and why are you worried about clothing? Listen to this. Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Amazing. A beautiful picture that Jesus is drawing. Look at Solomon, who worked so hard and amassed so much great wealth. And man, his whole life was about the the conquest of commerce. And these little flowers are prettier and better dressed than he ever was. And they didn't do a thing to earn it. They just received it as blessings. King Solomon was into great luxuries and into opulence. It's the picture of his life. And yet King Jesus offers us staple foods. The bread of life. Living water. These are the things that Jesus says we need. These are the things that will increase our faith and grow us into the kingdom and keep us single-hearted, loving Him above and beyond all others. Isaiah 55, He says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the water, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. But Lord, I said, I don't have any money. Okay, come, buy wine, milk, without money and without cost. No, I'd like to go to that grocery store. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you the faithful mercies shown to David. Why? Because David listened and lived. Solomon was looking. Saw God twice in a dream. But he didn't listen. He didn't listen. Integrity of heart, single focus. These are the things that God is looking for, and we'll talk more about those on Sunday. Let's bow and pray together. Father, I, I first just want to ask you, would you just give us your spirit, Lord, that we might have peace about all other things? Would you fill us up, Father, with your presence? So that whether it comes to buying milk or gasoline, that we just would not be a people who are worried about the economy. Father, would you help us to believe Jesus' words and not just talk about them? Lord Jesus, I do. I, I believe you. When you tell us we don't have to worry about what we're going to wear, where we're going to live, or what we're going to eat, because our Father cares more for us than anything else, I believe you. I believe you, Lord. I ask that you increase our faith. And I pray the increase of our faith would show up, Father, in such a way that people would begin to notice that we're not stressed out about what's happening in our economy. That we're not jumping on the bandwagon of those who would say political change is going to save America. Father, that we would stay true to you. We would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Knowing that you'll take care of the rest. Send us out, Father, with the peace and the contentment of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.